Welcome to Behind the Mirror, a podcast and a space where students in an online master's program can have the experience of sitting behind the one-way mirror with a professor, talking and thinking about um, really innovative ideas in the field. Today, I have Bonnie Kaplan, who I am just super excited to have on. And before we begin, we're talking about um, micronutrition and some of the supplements that are already out in the field. And you were saying that uh, you think it's very important to just start with the foundation. Right. We are built out of 50 essential nutrients, vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and essential fatty acids. That's what we should be sure we are getting optimally in optimal amounts first. And there's no one magic bullet. Forget that idea. But even then, people are always asking me about herbs or, or new things from plants, and, and some of them might be useful, but why do that if you haven't first attended to the basics that we know build our biology? Yeah, I think um, when you said that, I got so excited, <laughs> like super excited, because that theme is a theme by which I live my life. Oh, in a um, way. I feel like so many of the issues that we face in society, we keep trying to come up with new solutions. Mm. And what I see is we don't do the basics well. And that's across the field. That's right. Even if it's, even if it's things in terms of like getting sleep. Yeah. You know, we know sleep has a huge effect on your mental health, but do you have a TV in your room or do you not? Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, let's, before we get into all the fancy things on the fringes, let's take care of the, of the fundamentals that we know are solid. Um, and you're talking about that with nutrition. So that just gets me excited. That's absolutely true. And not only is it fundamental, it's really old knowledge. And I, you know, I don't remember right now, Jordan, did I, if I sent you the link to the lecture I have online, if not, I'll send it to you later for your students. It's a 45 minute review of the history. And I go back 2,600 years to the very first clinical trial of nutrition diet showing the impact on brain function. They didn't think of it as brain, but cognitive function. Um, And then certainly up to the last couple of hundred years where it was completely well known. In fact, I'll give you one anecdote. Um, uh, In about 1910, um, a book that uh, was kind of led, told people how to lead lead their lives when they didn't live near hospitals or clinics or veterinarians, etc., and often not near their ancestors because they had gone out west to homestead. The People's Home Library was like it was clinical practice guidelines. That's the book. Yeah. That's yeah, it's a very it's actually a three volume book. Clinical practice guidelines are what doctors now tell us should be best practice. Unfortunately, um, at least in Canada, over half of the doctors writing those guidelines are funded by pharmaceutical companies, so they only talk about medications. At any rate, clinical practice guidelines is a gold standard. It's very important to guide healthcare. The clinical practice guidelines in 1910, do you know what they said about mental health? What did they say? If people were were showing signs of mental illness, it meant that they were getting imperfect nutrition. It's an interesting phrase. It means it's not quite right for them. Go and feed them better. And that that was the dominant way people thought about mental dysfunction back then. 
Yeah. But, you know, the psychopharmacology revolution came along in about the 1970s and 80s, and that changed everything. Yeah. Man, do you think that that's mostly about, like, 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 why is that? Why, why does, why is that such a dominant force? Yeah. Well, money is the, uh, the obvious answer. Um, but also we, we are a society that likes to take a pill for an ill, right? And so if you've got an infection, you want someone to give you a magic pill of an antibiotic or many other things you want. We look to pills. We don't look to lifestyle, but, um, you know, I want to tell your your audience in particular, Jordan, because I assume that a lot of them are headed toward a clinical psychology counseling kind of career, that nutrition and lifestyle variables like sleep and exercise are within the scope of practice. And I can, if I didn't already, I can give you the Walsh article from the American Psychologist that characterizes the importance of psychologists beginning to focus on these lifestyle variables. And he specifies nutrition, diet, etc. Yeah, I um, when I was first looking into this, I looked it up because therapists, uh, family therapists, aren't this quite the same as psychologists in the in the states in in Louisiana, which is where I am. Right. Nutrition is under my scope of practice. Oh, uh, good. And so, just like you're saying, like it, it does fall under our scope of practice, and it's something that when I began to read about it and learn some of your work, I was like, wow, like this is really powerful stuff to help people especially when so many of the psychotropic chemicals that we use have massive side effects. They do. And I mean, you're a young man. I don't know if you're aware of what's emerging about a lot of young men who are given some of the uh, psychotropic medications become impotent and it is not reversible for all of them. Wow. Maybe you haven't been reading about that, but Mm -hmm. it's very hard to get data on that. Um, But there are, yeah, keep your eyes open for it. It's really devastating what we're doing, especially to young kids who are in foster care and some kind of residential treatment program. They're really over-medicated. That doesn't mean that medication is, is always wrong. There are people inevitably who will benefit from medication, at least in acute crises, and who need to be on medication. So I hope none of your audience will hear our discussion about nutrition as an anti-medication message. It's just that When people ask me, why are you studying supplements? I I always say, I'm not studying supplements. I'm studying fundamental nutrition, which should be the primary treatment. Medication sometimes is required as a supplement. So I don't... (laughs) (laughs) What's the supplement? Yeah, what's the supplement? Yeah. So I would love to back up for a second and just uh, ask you, how did you get into this? How did you get into the field of mental health in general? Well, I, when I look back at my training, I think I, I was, um, I, I meandered an awful lot. And basically, when somebody opened a door, I walked through it. But I did, um, at a certain point when I was in graduate school in psychology, I noticed that no matter what topic I was writing a paper on, I always um, wrote my paper on the biological basis of, or the biochemical basis of, whatever the topic was. So I thought, hmm, I guess I'm interested in brain function. <laughs> and so from that, I figured out that I needed to do, to do postdoctoral training in neurophysiology, which I did. And um, I don't know if you want to. Uh, I don't know if you want me to talk more specifically about where I trained or what I did for your students, or if we should skip over that. You let me know. Well. I'm really interested in how you go from neurophysiology to nutrition. 
Oh, well, that's what it's all about. Okay, I am so glad you asked. Now, I can't show slides on in, in a podcast kind of thing like this, but I know you're going to be giving links to my talks. The most important slide that I show, and I use it in every single one of my talks, and that means it doesn't matter if I'm talking to psychiatrists, policymakers, or, great, or kids in the sixth grade. I always show a slide that is a tiny little portion of the serotonin pathway. I made it up, I prepared the slide 15 years ago, and what it shows is how, let me see how to, without the visuals, it's really a challenge to explain it to you, but everybody knows that serotonin is a, tr a neurotransmitter that lets our brain cells talk to each other. And you know that you don't eat serotonin in your food. I think most people know that. We synthesize it mostly in our gut, but we synthesize it also in our brain. And the way we synthesize it is through metabolism. And metabolism is just a fancy word that means a transformation of one chemical to another. What does your brain need to transform one chemical to another? It needs enzymes. And enzymes are entirely dependent upon adequate amounts of minerals and vitamins. So when we are eating, let me back up from the diagram image I'm trying to put in your head now and just talk about what it means. When we're eating, this is neurophysiology. This is how we make our brain cells talk to each other. Um, when we eat, we are eating for vitamins and minerals, which go up into the brain and make those metabolic steps happen. And if you are not eating enough minerals and vitamins multiple times over the course of the day, you're simply not providing your brain with optimal nutrients for those cells to talk together quickly enough. So it sounds like um, if you're not eating vitamins, minerals, then your body doesn't have the building blocks to build the things that it needs to function. Exactly. And the amino acids and the essential fatty acids. But yeah. I tend to talk a lot about the minerals and vitamins because that's where my own work has been. And by the way, this is, people don't think about this. Have you ever wondered why we have to eat three times a day instead of like once a week? Why? Because it's such a dynamic process. We have about six quarts of blood in our whole body and brain. And an entire quart goes through our tiny little two-pound brain every 60 seconds. That means what we've been talking for about five minutes. Five, just picture five quarts of blood has gone through your tiny little brain that's only 2% of your body, just two pounds, okay? Why is it doing that? Well, of course, the blood is giving us oxygen, but also it's constantly refreshing those cofactors that the enzymes are trying to grab up so that our brain cells can work. Yeah. So basically, by the time I'm saying this, all of our blood in our body has gone through our, our brain. Oh, yeah. In six no. minutes. Right. No. Wow. Yes. I remember hearing that and just being floored. And then I think it was you. He was talking about how um, even though it's only 2% of your body, your brain is like 20% yes. of your metabolic uh, consumption, right. Consumption, yeah. I never know what word to use there either, but basically um, we are eating for our brains and our bodies. I, I mean, our brain is part of our body, but we always make this distinction, right? And the brain is only 2% of our body weight, but 
it's punching way above its weight. Like it absorbs and utilizes 20 to 40% of the nutrients we eat because it's so metabolically active 24 hours a day, every minute that you're alive, every minute that your heart is beating. That's insane. Yeah. It's insane. I think the thing that I want to go back to something that you said, because I don't, I've heard you say this before, but I don't know why it hit me that serotonin is made mostly in your gut. That's right. And, and the receptors are mostly in our guts, like upwards of 90% of the receptors are in the gut. So in fact, I used to say years ago, I'd say, you know, if anybody takes something like an SSRI to have more serotonin in the synapse, any benefit in their brain is a side effect. <laughs> That's how I thought of it. You got to say that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if, if a side effect is a, is a minor part and if most of the serotonin receptors are in your gut which is true um then any benefit to the brain is like a secondary side effect but it works for some people it works it's just that if you are also feeding your brain better you will synthesize more serotonin yeah wow that is just mind-blowing so And this is a crazy question, but are we even looking in the right direction then? I mean, if, if a lot of this is happening in the gut, do we, need, do we need to be paying a lot more attention to the gut instead of to the brain? Not instead of, but in addition to, yeah. for sure, Jordan. I'm not a bi- microbiome expert, but of course it's so relevant to my field. And I know that there are many people who have gut dysbiosis, lots of tummy aches and digestion problems and irritable bowel, and they don't absorb the nutrients very well. And even if you give them nutrients in pill form, they don't do very well. They need to sort out their gut issue first, usually. But the microbiome is just a really, really hot topic right now, as you may know, because we've discovered that the um, probably 90% of us is not human. It is, in fact, microbial DNA, microbes. And the weight of that microbial mass is actually about the same weight as our brain. Shows you how important. I mean, there, there are a gazillion of them. And most of them are in the gut. Not all. I mean, they're on our face. They're all over us. But certainly the gut is the most important part. Yeah. I remember hearing that and thinking, we are mostly not ourselves. We, that's right. That's right. Um, and this, I think this leads right into something else that you're, I think is at the crux of your whole um, understanding is mitochondria. Mm-hmm. because I've also heard that when we talk about, you know, the amount of us that is my comes from this, I don't know how to say it, this microbial. Um, you talk about the mitochondria. They are a unique little organism that we've, right. I've forgotten now how many billions of years ago. Years ago right. Yeah. And uh, they are independent little critters that live inside of every one of our cells. And we adapted to their ability to produce ATP, which is uh, adeno, oh gosh, I haven't thought about it, triphosphate, AD, ATP anyway. It's our energy molecule. So they are the little energy factories. And if, if your mitochondria stop working, you're dead. I mean, you are totally dependent, even though you can't see these things. Every single one of our cells has mitochondria, and some of them have thousands and others have a few 
And they're really interesting little critters, partly because they carry maternal DNA. That's uh, kind of a hot topic. The um, mitochondria that you inherit yeah. from your mother. I told, I told my wife that. I said, our son is more related to you than he is to me. She was like, what? I was like, I know. Science, man. Science. That's right. A little extra fraction of the DNA is totally from her. Yeah. But he's got a fair amount of you, too. <laughs> In terms of what we're talking about, though, what's interesting to know, I, I just told you about all, all these brain pathways, the synthesis of serotonin and also dopamine and also the transformation of uh, the essential fatty acids, everything, every all our hormones, everything is dependent upon having adequate nutrients as minerals and vitamins as cofactors for the metabolic steps. But in addition, guess what mitochondria need? They don't work unless they have the whole spectrum of vitamins, minerals, and essential fatty acids. So you got to eat, <laughs> got to eat good stuff. And if I'm understanding you, your work correctly, when they don't have those things, that leads to inflammation, which can lead to certain um, mental illnesses. Um, I'm going to give a subtle, you're right, but I'm going to give you a, a subtle, two subtle corrections. The first is um, you don't have to have mitochondria not working to have inflammation. We have inflammation all the time. When we breathe air and we release oxygen molecules throughout our system, they're called reactive oxygen species, that's inflammation. When we're attacked by viruses, we experience inflammation. Inflammation is good. If we didn't have mechanisms to um, uh, secrete these inflammatory molecules, we wouldn't be able to fight off infection. It's excessive chronic inflammation that we uh, it seems to be linked to depression. Now, it might be mediated by something else, and maybe that's too subtle for this, but I just want, want to say one more thing about it, and that is that um, uh, ATP, um, one of its major, major roles is to keep our inflammation in balance. You know, the, the human brain and body are, are amazing in terms of homeostatic mechanisms so that like our temperature doesn't go too high or too low. And other things, um, the amount of calcium in our bones doesn't go too high, too low. Uh, there are all kinds of things like that. There are, things are kept in a homeostatic um, balance. range, right, balance. And so it's the same thing with uh, ATP. ATP keeps inflammation in, a, in an okay range if you're feeding your mitochondria. <laughs> and of course, if you're feeding your mitochondria, you're feeding your brain, you're doing all the right things. So then things are in balance. I don't know if you've heard of, I heard briefly on a, a different podcast, someone was talking about the research that, that they're doing with dogs, I want to say, um, and giving them, giving them immunosuppressants. And I say this because you're talking about inflammation and how inflammation is good, except when it's chronic. Mm -hmm. And the guy was seeming to say that when you take immunosuppressants and they give them to these animals, it extends their lifespan because they're not, because they're having less. Um, except, no, they don't have as much excessive inflammation. Inflammation, yeah. I haven't heard of this, but it seems to me that a side effect of it would be that they might be more vulnerable, and they are. People who are on immunosuppressants are more vulnerable to other infections that can kill you. So I don't think it's a good way. It doesn't yeah. Like 
healthy thing to do. Right. I mean, and and what he was saying was that they're in this whole phase now where they're trying to figure out what is the right dose so that you can get the benefits but not the um, side effects. Yeah. And I'm like, well, now you're kind of playing with this. But it's an interesting idea of, mm. you know, especially if there's always a level of chronic inf- inf- chronic inf- inflammation, if you could lower that enough to extend life. I don't know. Anyway, um, One of, so we're how do life events play into this? I remember when I first saw your research, and I think I had just started um, looking at the research on adverse childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we know that people who have had severe trauma, um, they're there, the the physiological effect on our body it just wrecks havoc. Mm-hmm. Now, whether whether they end up uh, self medicating using drugs or if they just have a lot of what looks to be um, issues with their nervous system, right? Whether it's weird immune responses, arteries, you know, calcifying. Um, irregular heart rates that all that all that sort of thing yeah and so when i first i was like these people are benefiting from nutrition probably because their body is in overdrive and they're getting the vitamins and minerals that they need they're getting the nutrition that they need to so that they don't run out of fuel does that make sense uh, it does. I think I would um, maybe frame it a little bit differently because I, I know the research in nutrition that's related to that, I would put it under the rubric of resilience. Mm. We, we know that a well-nourished brain is much more resilient to any kind of trauma. And I'll give you uh, one general example, and then I'll, I'll cite some studies on it, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, the general example, because it's general because I've lost the reference for this. I have to dig this one up because it's so amazing. Um, it, it, you know, there are animal models of head trauma, which are very important for understanding the sequence of events and how to treat head trauma, etc. And a couple years ago, I saw a rat study where they they have a, a controlled um, thing which kind of bonks the rats on the head for a concussion, and then they you know study the effects. And somebody had the idea of giving uh, one group of rats a whole lot of extra minerals and vitamins. Now, one of the reasons that's interesting is that laboratory animals, rats, mice, you name it, are generally more, uh, more thoroughly um, receiving better nutrition than you and I because they eat rat chow. Rat chow has lots of minerals and vitamins. So one group got rat chow and one group got rat chow plus additional minerals and vitamins. Not only did the very, very well-nourished group um, not develop as much uh, tissue damage from the, that control, in that controlled setting, but they bounced back more quickly. They recovered function. So that's really interesting to me because of some studies that have just been done in the last few years on people who've experienced natural disasters. Now, um, I have to tell you, I thought you were in Texas. Are you in Louisiana? Mm-hmm. 
I'll be darn. I apologize. So you, um, where in, in Louisiana, are, were you experiencing Katrina when it happened? No, no, but that is, a, I mean, everybody here has a Katrina story. It's like 9-11 for the rest of the country. Everybody has a, my life was doing this, then Katrina happened, and then I did that. Yeah, it's, it's right. wild. So this might really interest your audience then. So um, Julia Rucklidge, uh, who is um, a professor of psychology, she's a clinical psychologist at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, was studying the use of minerals and vitamins using one of the broad spectrum formulas that were developed here in Canada, actually, but they have over 30 um, minerals and vitamins. So it's not like there's a magic bullet. It's like all of the nutrients that we usually get from plants in these capsules. And she was doing clinical trials of it in 2010 when very unexpectedly her town, Christchurch, had a massive earthquake. I don't know if you would remember that, <clears throat> but um, it was pretty bad. And then over the next five months, they had 8,000 smaller ones. They call them aftershocks, but I mean, it was a very, very stressed group of people. And they pretty much ended in February of 2011 with the worst earthquake of all, which killed hundreds of people and destroyed a third of the downtown. It was quite massive. So in this context, Julia had been, um, I should just say that Julia Rutledge has the most active research program on, on the broad spectrum micronutrient treatment of anyone in the world. And she has an excellent TEDx talk, which if I didn't give you that link, I can give it to you. So 17 minutes really gives you an overview. Anyway, so in the midst of of her clinical trials with people with various kinds of diagnoses of depression and anxiety, these earthquakes started happening. And she did a series of studies. Um, and what she showed was that people who were getting the real formula as opposed to, you know, she had placebos, right, um, were much more resilient. Had They recovered much more quickly. I mean, in four weeks, the um, their PTSD scores um, those who, let me say this correctly, the percentage of the population who were in her studies um, who met criteria for PTSD went down from about two-thirds to 19% in just four weeks. So it was very, very powerful data. And th that research was published in about 2012, the first of it. And then where I live, we don't have Katrinas, we don't have earthquakes, we don't have, well, we have an occasional small tornado. But what we have occasionally is a flood. Not often, thank goodness. But we um, are outside of Banff and the Rocky Mountains and the snow melt, if it's melting very fast at a time when we have the spring rainstorms, it's the perfect storm. And that happened to us in 2013, June of 2013. And it was quite devastating. Our downtown was underwater and lots of people lost their property, etc. So we replicated Julia Rutledge's work in New Zealand. We randomized people to get one of three different nutritional approaches. And we also showed that in, by improving people's nutrition, their depression, anxiety, and stress scores went way, way down compared to a, you know, a comparison group very fast. They, were, they just bounced back. So that was a long answer to say my framework when I think about ACEs, et cetera, is that a lot of these kids are already, they're not, they're not being fed well, right, when they're in these terrible environments. So it's like a, a double whammy. They, are, they don't have the biological resilience, and then they have these terrible family problems. Yeah. Wow. So when you're looking at treating, 
a group of people, a population. Uh, how many people see see benefits from from uh, broad spectrum micronutrients? Yeah. I should tell your audience that I, I try not to use jargon, but we do tend to use the word micronutrient because we get tired of saying mineral and vitamin. Okay, so when I say micronutrient, I mean mineral and vitamin. Other people use micronutrient to include the essential fatty acids and the amino acids and all. Um, Jordan, I'm not sure that I can answer your question. I can tell you because there have been over 35 peer-reviewed publications now on this broad-spectrum approach, I can tell you that... Um, the symptoms which are the quickest and the easiest to treat and the most predictably responsive to uh, micronutrients uh, are explosive rage, irritability, big mood swings, okay? You get irritability and explosive rage and mood swings under diagnostic categories like bipolar disorder. You also get it in a lot of children who are in big trouble behaviorally. Um, other symptoms that are a little harder to treat and meaning some people respond well, but others, it's incomplete, uh, are some of the more severe anxiety problems. Okay. So what's the, what's the common factor between the explosiveness, the anger, the rage? Well, Is I that... think of mood regulation, self-regulation. And, you know, you, you see it in kids. Like recently, um, uh, let's see, can I tell a story of a case? Yeah. I know this one's not published. And never will be. It was just a, the son of an acquaintance. The acquaintance disclosed to me that his, he and his wife were just under such unbelievable stress because their six-year-old son was having these uh, tantrums lasting two and three hours. And they had gone through training. They'd gone to therapy. They'd gotten counseling. They'd been doing everything right, and they could not get them under control. And he, this little boy had never swallowed pills. And the micronutrient formulas are in large capsules. So just as a, an aside, I ended up studying pill swallowing with my students, and we developed uh, a really very effective method of teaching children to swallow pills, and adults too. And there's a training video on the web, and that also, I have to make sure you have that link, okay? So I said to my friend, you know, it's going to take a couple weeks minimum for him to learn to swallow pills. Why don't you just go get some liquid minerals? Because if anything, I think we're, our, our food sources are really, really short on dietary minerals more than vitamins. But the vitamins are important too. Don't, don't get me wrong. Anyway, um, they started charting and they gave him the liquid minerals and um, he never has had another tantrum. That's very, very strong. But what was really interesting was they could see him in the following week. They could see him start to get wound up and as only a parent, and, and you'll see, <laughs> can detect those early signs um, of something going off and heading toward, you know, escalating. And then they'd see him rein it back in. That was the first thing they could see him begin to self-regulate. And it was, it was amazing. By the way, we did get him onto one of the formulas because I don't think you should take just vitamins. They, they need to go together. We jumped right to nutrients in pill form. And for your audience, I, I want them to know that, that I often call, even my own research on nutrients in pill form, I call it a proof in, of principle. But we cannot put the whole world on pills. And so my takeaway message should be much stronger on diet. And so I wonder if I could talk about that for a minute. Absolutely. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, University, college students, all kinds of students live on ramen noodles, 
craft macaroni and cheese, um, pizza and beer and soda, right? And if, I, if we could just teach them about the brain metabolism using the graphs on serotonin and dopamine, et cetera, that I told you about, I think it makes people stop and think about what they put in their mouths a little bit more. And now we do have uh, one really important study that was done um, in Australia on whole of diet and how it can be used to improve mental health. And so when you think about the whole population, since we're not going to be handing out pills to everybody, um, this is a really important next Although step. that might make a lot of money, which means people might actually do it. Uh, <laughs> someone, someone might actually... <laughs> they might actually do it, yeah. Except, you know, the drug companies can't get any money, so they're trying to squelch it. They can't. Well, no, you can't. You cannot um, patent... Um, uh, minerals and vitamins. Mm. Um, so uh, the way the way I the example I usually use if this is a new idea I'm going to tell you my example. Let's say I'm a manufacturer and I make a uh, hundred tablets of a hundred milligrams of vitamin C and I decide to patent it and I say nobody else can make a hundred milligrams of vitamin C and you come along and say that's okay I'll make ninety nine. So my patent is worthless. Right. So there's just no, and, and nutrients vary. It's, you know, you can't do it. So drug companies really mostly cannot, there are a couple of exceptions in the States. Like there's a vitamin D formula in the States, which uh, is um, made by drug companies, but uh, drug companies are trying very hard in Canada and Australia and probably soon the United States to remove all natural health products from the shelves. Because they're losing a lot of money. People are treating themselves with nutrition, you know, and they don't want to take the drugs. So it's, it's a real worry. Yeah. But here's the study that was done in Australia. And I, I always say to people, if you remember two things from my talk, uh, remember the brain metabolism and how every single metabolic step needs a whole bunch of vitamins and minerals to work. And remember this study. This is a study that was done with, um, I think they had about 70 adults with major depressive disorder. And they were randomized to two groups. That means they could not choose. But one group got dietary counseling. And I'll tell you what the dietary counseling consisted of in a minute. And the other got uh, peer support, social support. Now, we know social support is very good for people with depression. So, of course, everybody and, you know, lots of people in both groups got better. But when they looked at the rates of remission in just 12 weeks, and by remission it means the people didn't, no longer qualified for a diagnose, diagnosis of major depression, um, 33%, a third of them who got dietary counseling were in remission, and 8% who got social support. So 33% compared to 8%. And all they were taught was how to eat a whole eat whole foods how to cook from scratch how to eat a mediterranean kind of diet mediterranean diet means you know the good oils like olive oil fish a couple times a week nuts and seeds um if you eat meat eat meat dairy eat dairy cheese and if you want to save money eat a lot of beans and peas and legumes so that's that's a very important message to give to people that's what we have to teach people. I, I give lectures now a lot to um, companies 
especially the oil companies in downtown Calgary. We're like a little Houston up here, you know, and on workplace wellness. And the message I give them is set the, set the stage in your workplace. Don't let people bring donuts. Make it, make it uncool, inappropriate to be bringing junk food to work. Encourage people to eat whole foods, real foods. Exchange recipes. Emphasize cooking from scratch, etc. Yeah, a lot of what you're saying makes me think about the, um, the, the Blue Zone studies, what people who live in these yes. longevity hotspots eat regularly. Exactly. The blue zone stuff. Exactly. But, you know, if we had had a new antidepressant that resulted in a one-third remission in just 12 weeks with no side effects except feeling more energy, sleeping better, having better bowel function, etc., it would be on the cover of Time magazine, right? But nobody knows about the nutrition research because the media won't cover it. I want to go back to something that you said a second ago, um, because it sounds like a lot of these improvements people can experience by changing their diets. Yes. How, how is it that our diets have gone off the rails? Oh, boy. Well, post-World War II is when it really changed. Before, before um, the post-war period, people cooked from scratch. There were no prepared foods. There were no frozen foods very few canned foods, too expensive. And so people cooked from scratch. That's where it went off the rails a lot. And how did it change then? No, pardon? How what? What about World War II changed how people cooked? Uh, people were developing um, prepared foods, especially for our soldiers. Uh, and freezing foods was like a miracle that, that happened after World War II. So it was really in the 50s. But the, the war effort did contribute to it, but then it just took off. And then we have this whole generation now that thinks of going out to eat is the norm, which is shocking to me, as you can see, but your audience is not here. So I am shocked at how people eat out all the time. And, and also they think of food as entertainment. And the way I grew up, food wasn't entertainment. Food was just what you did to feed your brain and body. So wow. that's what has really gone off the rails. Food is entertainment instead of food is medicine. Yes. No. It's, wow. So when you said that, it made me really just get curious. Does frozen food have the same nutritional value as, as other food? You know, like if I went to the store and got a bag of frozen vegetables, is that? Actually, our modern frozen food is quite good, as is our canned food. Okay. Um, yeah. So, the, so it's but, more like the like processed food that we want to stay away from. Exactly. I try not to use the term junk food. It's the difference between whole food and processed food. And I'll tell you a little story that will help your listeners um, remember this, I think. The World Health Organization divides our food into four categories. At the top and the best is whole food. Under that is food that has been slightly processed in, in any way, packaged, frozen, whatever. Then, you know, more processing. And the fourth is ultra-processed food. Ultra-processed food is uh, something like Fruit Loops, 
there is no nutritional value in most of our breakfast cereals that we feed our kids. It's just disgusting. You know, it's just, there's nothing there. Well, a study just came out about the Canadian diet, and I'm sure you Americans are no better in this. <laughs> it showed, I was shocked at this, Jordan, and I've been studying diet for a long time. It showed, um, and this is a Canada-wide survey, that 48%, let's round it at 50 50% of the caloric intake that Canadians are putting into their mouths are from the ultra-processed category. No nutrients. So immediately you know that 50% of the nutrients that we should be getting, we're not getting. Is it any wonder our brains aren't working? Not that there aren't other reasons, but yeah. nutrition is a contributor. Yeah, I mean, when you said that, it sounds to me that we're entering a we're entering an era of, I want to say insanity, but it, it feels like things are upside down. Because, so I'm reading this book called Homo Deus, um, which is about the future and, and how far we've come as, as, as humans. Mm-hmm. And the guy talks about how we are finally at a place in society where our main concern is no longer what we're going to eat. People do not die of lack of food because there's no food anymore. There might be political reasons, yada, 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 yada. But in, you know, the developed world, we have plenty of food. Hmm. And hearing you talk about, you know, this vast nutritional deficiency, it sounds like we're entering a, a, this, this really weird era of humanity where we have plenty of food to feel full but we do not have plenty of food. We're not ingesting plenty of food that has um, good nutritional value. You know, if you want to get, you're absolutely right, Jordan. And if you want to get really depressed, I could tell you some (laughs) (laughs) things about this. Yeah. Why not? I got, I got, you know, time. Yeah. Depress me. (laughs) Okay. So there's been research accumulating recently about how the increase in carbon dioxide in our atmosphere is making plants grow better. It turns out because plants like carbon dioxide, right? So they grow better, but they are nutrient deficient. The increased carbon dioxide, you know what? I, I need to say something before I say anything more about this because I'm finding people don't know really where we get our vitamins and minerals. So Think of it this way, folks, all you listeners out there. Plants grow in, in soil. And in the soil, there are about 15 minerals if the soil is healthy. The plants are very smart. They absorb those 15 minerals and they create about fi- approximately 15 vitamins. We can't do that. Plants are way smarter than we are, much more, more um, capable that they can create these 15 vitamins. So then we come along and we who cannot synthesize vitamins or minerals, we eat the plants and we absorb approximately 30 vitamins and minerals. Or we eat the animals like cattle who have eaten the plants and we get the vitamins and minerals through the, the animals. Okay, that's where the vitamins and minerals come from. But there's lots of reason and lots of data to show that our soil doesn't have as many minerals as it used to have. And now it turns out that even the minerals that they do have are being, um, how can I say this, sequestered, chelated, clumped together in plants by certain things 
that prevent them from creating enough uh, vitamins and also prevent us from being able to absorb the minerals when we eat the plants. And two of those things are the increased CO2 in the air and good old Roundup, glyphosate. Okay, so we have a real problem. The Europeans are smart. They, they outlawed GMO products like around, you know, the Roundup Ready seeds. But now it's completely saturated our countries. So we're in a little bit of a pickle here. And we're creating, we are growing a lot of food which doesn't have as much nutrition as our ancestors were able to eat from their food. Doesn't mean you should stop trying to, it means you should try harder. Don't <laughs> you have to try even harder to eat lots of good, healthy food and learn to cook from scratch. So how big of an effect is that? Is that something that we're seeing as a small trend? Is that something that's snowballing? Is that something that's already massive? A study just came out on um, uh, different strains of rice in China uh, showing that in some cases the amount of CO2 that will be in the atmosphere by the year 2050 um, cuts down the amount of uh, the nutrients by, I think it was over 20%. It's really wow. serious. It's really serious. Wow. Yeah. So um, all we can do is... <laughs> do whatever we can you know the thing i use the term uh, and you know just eat as best we can and get other people to eat as best we can every bite you put in your mouth is an opportunity i used the term gmo before i just want to add um one of the things that troubles me about the whole debate on gmo is people only talk it seems to me talk about cancer people people forget about brain health and yet it's this metabolically very active organ. So when people say, oh, there's no evidence that GMO products are bad for us, they usually mean in terms of cancer. And I don't know that I'm not an oncologist, but I, I believe them that the GMO and uh, things don't increase cancer. But if they are decreasing the nutrient availability in our food supply, you know, someone should be looking at the brain. Yeah. So let's try to talk about something happy now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is such a downer, Jordan. <laughs> oh wow. Um, so how would this? How does this factor into things like autism? Well, autism is really complex. I'd like to deal with this only briefly because otherwise we'll be here for another four hours. But um, the core symptoms of autism are probably controlled by things that are happening happening in utero that have not been really well defined yet. But we do know there are, there are two studies now that have shown that um, some of the accompanying symptoms that make the autistic kids so difficult to live with, you know, uh, like the explosive rage and the irritability and the screaming and the tantruming, that those can be improved somewhat by nutrition. But I don't, I, I don't think there's any scientific evidence to think that nutrition can make autism go away. No. There's interesting work on the microbiome, but it's too soon to comment on that. And what about things like dementia? Well, that's a really interesting one. Uh, again, it's a little outside of my expertise, but I, I've reviewed the literature just recently, actually, for a friend um, whose brother is, uh, is headed that way. Um, and 
I can tell you that what I've read is that the pharmaceutical companies have stopped trying to develop medication for dementia because none of it's working. They've poured billions of dollars and there's never been an effective medication yet. So you have to look at lifestyle. And I think we're back to diet and exercise as being the most neural protective. So a very interesting study that was done at Oxford University a few years ago uh, took people with early cognitive impairment and randomized them to either be given high-dose B vitamins or um, placebo. And they tracked them now, I, I want to say for three years. It wasn't a real long time. But they did MRIs. And the people on placebo had seven times as much uh, neuronal loss, atrophy, as those who were on high-dose B vitamins. So there certainly, and there is there are one or two studies that suggest that a Mediterranean-type diet that I described to you before is neuroprotective. But so is exercise. Yeah. And social support. Yeah. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's obvious, right? And that's, that's, um, there was, I think it was a, there was a study in, I think it was a Canadian journal that talked about um, nine protective factors that they found um, in a meta-analysis. I have to look that one up. And, of course, the, the Blue Zone research says the exact same stuff, right? Right. Uh, yeah. And that's all about Lifestyle. longevity. Yeah. Um, Style. Is there? It's, I think it's fascinating that you said that because I, I work part time at a hospital working with seniors who have some form of dementia, Alzheimer's, uh, cognitive decline, well, and it is. And I'm I'm very aware at of how some of the interventions that we use just don't help. You know, yeah. Some of these medications that we use, um, yeah, I, I really wonder about the effect, the effectiveness of them. So if you could send me, um, if you have it you know, readily available, send me some of those articles. I think that'd be fascinating. Well, I'll just send you the one on the B vitamins. Yeah. Okay. Um, sure. It's, yeah. it's interesting. But I don't know if it's been replicated yet, but right. it's a very good study. So B vitamins and dementia. Okay. Yeah. Um, could I, you know, I want to say one more thing since I'm very aware of the fact that I'm, my audience here is not just you, it's, uh, your students and students never have enough money to live on. And they might think that the Mediterranean type of diet is too expensive, that they can't do it. So first of all, I want to tell you that the Australian study compared the price that the amount of money that people were spending per week prior to being in the study and the amount of money, uh, it cost them to eat the Mediterranean kind of diet, which resulted in their improvement in mental health, there was only a $6 difference. And the, I, I, when I'm... $6 per month, $6 per week. Yeah. So um, the, the reason I, I raise this, though, is that I often talk to people who are absolutely convinced that healthy food has to cost more. And I always say, if you're going to eat lobster every night, that might be true. But the most overlooked and wonderful source of food is dried beans and legumes. And people say, oh, they're too hard to cook. So I'm going to tell you how easy it is. Okay, you're going to get a little cooking lesson out of this yet. Do you, by the way, Jordan, do you cook with dried beans, beans, 
I can't say it. Beans and peas? I I do not. My my wife grew up overseas and she loves beans. So we, I mean, we eat a lot of beans. Okay. One of my one of the best things that she makes is uh, black bean burgers, and they're just delicious. But, yeah. I love black beans. Yeah. Now, does she start with dried black beans? She does. She uses canned black beans. Yeah. Canned is quick and easy. If you want to save money, and some people don't like that maybe some cans aren't as healthy, although I, I don't know. I think the evidence is out on that. Um, I want your listeners to know, your students to know, how easy it is to cook with dried beans. So if, suppose you want to make something with uh, black beans. You, you know, the other night my husband poured a couple of cups. Actually, that night was some white beans. doesn't matter. Um, rin- you know, you look through them quickly, rinse them, put them in a pot with water to cover, put the lid on, and go to sleep. That's not hard to do. All you do is soak them overnight. The next day, if you have a pressure cooker, um, you just cook them and you go online. You don't need a cookbook. There are zillions of recipes for all kinds of different sauces and things you can do with um, split peas and lentils. And lentils, by the way, you don't even need to soak. They're so fast. Uh, Lentils and beans. And so you have an infinite variety of things that you can make. And it's so healthy. And you're getting a lot of good dietary vitamins and minerals. I actually know a friend who's um, I used to work with who's new to Canada and his family is back in Uganda and he's saving money to bring them over. And he told me he lives on about $5 worth of dried beans and rice per week. I am not recommending that. And, I told him, <laughs> <laughs> and he said he does get some greens, but he can't always get the African greens he wants. So anyway, um, but it is, it's dirt cheap and yet it's beautifully healthy and, and really open to all kinds of seasoning. Do you have a cookbook? I want your, your wife's recipe for black bean. Oh, I will have her send it to you. Absolutely. Okay. I'll make a, I'll make a note. Now, do you have like a cookbook or anything or you, you're no. just like, no, no. You know, the reason I talk about these things is I find people feel overwhelmed at the nutrition knowledge out there. And I just think what's important is so simple. Eat whole food, eat real food. And if you're trying to save money, learn about dried beans. Now, I I would think that the biggest pushback people would have is it just takes time to cook. Well, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, if it's in the pressure cooker, you can go do other things while it's cooking. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, there's no question. It's and and now we have a lot of we have a lot of good healthy options. Um, you have freshies down there, or things like that that make amazing beautiful freshies. Freshies, yeah. I have, I have no idea what that is. It's a Canadian chain, I think, that has really made good, healthy, delicious salad bowls with protein. Your choice of all kinds of things, um, quite affordable. You know, for eight dollars, you have a wonderful meal. And um, and it's a fast food, but a fresh, whole, wonderful food. I'm sorry, I sound like I'm giving a commercial, but the point is that there are a lot of options. You don't have to cook from scratch every night, but you have to learn to cook from scratch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree with you, and I think um, that's. I think we all have to make a choice about what's important to us, mm-hmm. and I think that the long-term benefits of eating well is just immense. 
Right. And the long-term consequences of eating poorly is just immense as well. It's true. And I still think that it kind of makes me sad, but I do think most people would, you know, say, well, I could go out to eat and get something quick from McDonald's. You know, that's what I'm going to do because it's just, it's just faster and easier. And people, it's, it's, we live in a strange society where the more things have become easy, the more we feel stressed out in a sense. Um, hmm. Well, you'll have which less is, stress. Which is weird. You'll be more resilient to the stress if, if you well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that is something to keep in mind. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you also about um, knowledge translation. Hmm. Because I feel like that was such a, just that idea was such a big idea. You talked a little bit about that in one of your other interviews. Oh, okay. So in a way, I've told you what I'm doing now. I guess I haven't told your audience yet that I'm technically retired. I'm no longer the uh, chief scientist. We call them principal investigator of um, any studies. I'm still collaborating on some things. But two years ago, I stepped down from being um, that, and I'm what's called emeritus, so Professor Emerita at the University of Calgary. And um, when I, as I was stepping down um, and planning for it, I was thinking, what am I going to do? And I came up with a list of, short list of things, but one of the most important was knowledge translation, because that means I go out and I talk to, as I said, kids in grade six, and also Oil, execu- oil company executives and their staff who, you know, have 20% mental illness in the workplace and it's costing a lot of money for the companies. And I, I talk to them about the things they just take for granted, like the things they stuff in their mouths and how they can't take it for granted. And one of the things that I do is I use the analogy to smoking. Now, you're too young to remember, but I remember in the 70s and 80s, when people were still smoking in the workplace, it was okay to smoke in the workplace. And before we had regulations, there was a like a tipping point when the workplace said, wait a minute, it is not okay to expose your coworkers to cigarette smoke. And they made it um, inappropriate to smoke indoors and they pushed the smokers out of doors. And eventually also we had laws and regulations. And I want part of my KT, knowledge translation, is to teach people the importance for their brains of eating well and how they need to do the same thing in the workplace about food. That means if so many people have lunch meetings, it's not okay to have sugar sodas. You have to have carbonated water with a touch of fruit juice. It's not okay to be... Um, bringing in desserts that are uh, donuts and junk and highly processed food. It's time to set the standard just the way we did with smoking because we all benefit when people have better mental health. Yeah. That's my KT. Can you, can, can you explain for my audience what KT is? It really is the translation of scientific knowledge to the real world. So I spent my whole career showing the importance of nutrition for brain function. And now publishing in journals is not enough. You know, there's this long time lag between, um, and the media doesn't cover nutrition for mental health. They only cover new drugs. So there's a real imperative for us to go out into the 
outside of academia into the real world and teach people about brain metabolism and what nutrition does for our brains. I think one of the things that was so fascinating when I was uh, reading through some of the articles and watching some of the videos was how slow that process can really be. Oh, yeah. It's almost like we learn things and then we forget them or we learn them and then no one does anything about them. Um, it's, it's knowledge translation seems to be not just telling somebody, but almost a way of like packaging, packaging information so that, so that it stays around. I don't know. It's, it's just weird. Right. It's hard to make it stay around. It's hard to make it stick. It almost sounds yeah, like it is. Um, certainly there's this old rule of thumb uh, that if you develop something new in medicine or health, it takes at least 10 years to educate the public about it. But in nutrition, it seems to be even longer. And I don't know if you bumped into this or not. If you watched Julia Rutledge's um, TED Talk, you would have heard yeah. her talking about it. But, um, you know, scurvy used to be a horrible, fatal disease from people who didn't get enough vitamin C. But before we even knew what vitamin C was, all that we knew was that in the 18th century, all those people who signed on to be sailors for long journeys, they had a 40% mortality rate. I mean, can you imagine volunteering to go on a long trip if you know there was a 40% chance you would die and a higher percentage chance you'd be sick? And someone, and I'm not going to be able to tell you the names or anything, so it's a general summary, but um, figured out that maybe it had something to do with citrus fruit. And so they did a randomized trial. And they put limes on some ships and no limes on other ships. And those that had limes, some citrus, which contained vitamin C, had a zero mortality rate. Well, that's pretty convincing. Wouldn't you think that all the ships then would have been sailing with limes or lemons or some citrus? No, it took 264 years before the British sailing administration, whatever the admiralty said, all ships must have some form of citrus. And as Julie and I often say to each other, we don't have 264 years to wait around. We have a horrible epidemic of mental illness right now. We've got to talk to people now. Why, why is it so slow? Why is that so slow? Uh, boy, I, you know, <laughs> when you figure it out, Jordan, tell me. <laughs> I talk and talk and talk. I do interviews like this. I publish, but um, people are stuck in their ways. There's a great book called The Tipping Point that explains it a bit. Malcolm Gladwell's book. Um, that's by, uh, oh, it kills me that I can't come up with his name off the top of my head, so I'm going to Google it real quick. Is there, is there a second? I know Malcolm Gladwell has a book. That's it, Malcolm yeah. Gladwell. Thank you. You got it before I did. So um, that is, have you read that book? I have, I have. Well, that's what we're talking about because it takes a sea change, a, a point where suddenly people say as a society, whoa, we got to do something about that. Yeah. Wow. How to make the tipping point happen. Oh, boy, I don't know. Yeah, I know. That's... I was thinking about that book and I was like, 
apparently he knows because his book tipped. So we need to feel like we need to ask. He's such a great writer. He's such a, <laughs> a grabber of a writer. Yeah, he knows. So, you know, we have in both your country and mine, we have 20% prevalence rate of mental illness. And it's getting yeah. worse. Uh, it's getting worse. I was at a symposium a few weeks ago in LA and a speaker from Yale said that one out of every two Yale students shows up in the mental health uh, center now. That's obscene. Um, there's, have you ever heard of E. Fuller Torrey? Is, no. is that He's a very famous uh, uh, American psychiatrist. And he wrote a book in 2002 asking the question, has the prevalence of mental illness really increased? And he pulled together, he's quite a bright guy, pulled together all the data up to 1750, and he showed that there was a prevalence rate of 1 in 10,000. And then by 1960, it was 3 in 10,000. And he found that so shocking, he entitled his book The Invisible Plague because it had tripled by 1960. Do you know what it is now, though? It's 2,000 in 10,000. Wow. Wow. Or higher. I mean, something's wrong, and it's not – don't tell me it's increased stress in our lives because my grandparents lived through World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, the Holocaust. That was stress. But they they were more resilient, even though they were very traumatized. But we didn't. I don't believe we have more stress now. So, what do you think? I mean, besides this problem with nutrition, what else do you think it is? Well, I do think technology is a big problem. Now, you've got a a new little kiddo, and you want to start thinking about at what age you're going to let him have his own cell phone, Mm -hmm. and, and whether or not they'll be okay to be turned on at meals and whether you're going to be walking him with a cell phone in one hand. I mean, that I don't think that's been very good for people. Yeah. By technology, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of separated us from each other. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. so. Which is part of the problem. Part of the problem. TV in your own bedroom, that's, boy, I never let my son have that. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. But it's complicated. There are other forces, you know. Yeah. No, I mean, I think um, that makes sense to me that part of it is is the lack of presence, I think, in each other's lives, you know. Yeah. That's part of it. Um, so what do you think is on the frontier of, like, mental health? Oh, well, you're talking to someone who wants it to be nutrition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, of course. I mean, of course, that's why I'm talking to you, right? I think yeah. that nutrition is. And, and what else do you think is on? Yeah. Now, do you think that, that this is the forefront? Do you think there's something else that we are, need to be looking at? Um, well, I, my bias is too strong here because I see people looking at everything else I can think of. I mean, people want to look at exercise. They want to look at mindfulness. Great. There's so much work in those areas. Um, but I I do think nutrition is the biggest thing that's being neglected. And I tell clinic clinicians, um, you know, I think a lot of clinicians and family docs are uncomfortable asking a a patient or a client about their diet. It sounds accusatory, you know, like how often did you eat at McDonald's this week? And that is not going to be very good for a therapeutic relationship. Right? So I give them the words. Um, It's very easy to say to a client, or for a family doc to say to a patient, just, um, 
you know, there's an increasing amount of information showing that what we eat affects how we feel. Could we talk about your diet? And then there are some very simple questions to ask and that there are no right answers or wrong answers, but you get a feel for whether people are, are really looking at food or if they're just putting you know, stuff in their mouth to stop the hunger pains. And the questions are obvious, like about how many sweetened drinks do you think you drink in a week? Um, about how many times do you eat in restaurants in a week? How many times of those are fast food restaurants? Um, things like that you can ask and telling them that, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. I just want to get a handle on how many times do you eat in front of the TV or have the TV on or have your computer with you. You get a feel from that. And then the last thing I tell clinicians is you should be sponsoring cooking classes. You should be teaching people how to cook from scratch inexpensive food so that people feel that they can do it. It's, it's part of mental health. Yeah. I think that's a great idea. You know, we published a study up here in Canada in the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry um, that had results that I never thought we would find. It was one of the most surprising studies I've ever done. We had about 100 people who had diagnosed mood disorders, and we asked them to keep food diaries for three days. And we also had their overall general functioning level for each of those days. And the computer spit out the levels of about 12 vitamins and minerals. And I couldn't believe it, but every single one of those vitamins and minerals was correlated with overall level of mental functioning, except for one, and that was sodium, okay? But all the other micronutrients, minerals and vitamins, were correlated with how people felt. That's... That tells us a lot, right? Yeah. That's a yeah. mental health issue then. How your clients are eating is your issue if you are a family therapist. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, this has been great. I have one more question for you. And it's the question that you told me that you did not want to answer. but I'm going to ask it anyway. Oh, okay. So what are, you, what are you reading now? Like outside of articles, like if you were going to recommend a book, what, do you, oh. what would you recommend? Okay. Yeah. The reason I didn't want to answer it, Jordan, is um, maybe because I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I've really been, up until two years ago, so totally immersed in generating scientific research. Mm -hmm. um, books are, are written for the lay public, and I, I've read very few of them, and I don't have a book to recommend. I'm so sorry. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about writing one and kind of? I have. Yeah. I have thought about it. I have even talked to a publisher about it. And somehow I, I just, everything else gets in the way. I'm too busy. You know? So it hasn't happened yet. But somebody should write. Yeah. Maybe Julia and I, we've talked about it. But oh, who's got time? I think it's that would be. It's a lot of work. Facet. Oh, well, yeah, it is a lot of work. Have you guys done, you guys have done some uh, blogging though, haven't you? We, yeah, we write, we co-author a blog for Mad in America, madinamerica.com. Uh, and we're the nutrition bloggers. Needless to say, most of the uh, blogs there are about mental health and the problems people have had getting off of psychiatric meds, etc. Ours is purely on nutrition. Yeah. yeah. I, I have read several of those and I thought they were just fantastic. 
I wish somebody would take them and turn them into a book for me. <laughs> any of your listeners are interested in doing that, then, then we can have a book. That's, that's actually easier than you would think. You, you might want to go ahead and do that yourself. Uh, mm. okay. Or I'll do it. I'll just, I'll just do it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you want to be my ghostwriter? Or my I'll be your, yeah. <laughs> we can talk. Well, look, I have enjoyed this so much. Um, do you have any closing words for, for students in a family therapy program? Um, yeah, I maybe do have just one thing. Um, there are a gazillion diets out there. You know, oh, gluten-free, oh, um, uh, net zero um, or something like that. Um, uh, ketogenic diet, etc. I'm not saying that any of those are bad or whatever. It's just you don't need to know that. You, and you don't need to work with a dietitian to just teach people to eat whole, real food. People who are gluten sensitive will figure it out. And some of them are, and they feel a lot better without it. People, who, same thing with dairy sensitive. All that I'm saying is for the general population and for clinicians, if they can just emphasize to their clients the importance of eating real food, um, then their clients will feel better. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a beautiful message. Um, and maybe if I'm lucky enough, I'll get to have you back on again later. Okay. Thank you for interviewing me, Jordan. This was a pleasure. All right.